just a small task today, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and I've still got to get to the other sites on time, which I do intend to do, uh, but we'll see, won't they? At least you lot will get it. Um, but um, today we're going to see a great deal of character development for, from the main character in the story. It would be fair to call the Bible, to subheading it, God's autobiography. He's the one who wrote it. And also, he's the main character. And today, we're going to see some considerable character development of this character. And there's going to be things that we see in the story today that they didn't know before they happened in the story. They just didn't know. Even some of the heroes of the faith, like Abraham and Jacob, uh, before. And I I want to kind of flag this up right at the start before we get into the the narrative um, at this point. Because for us, I want to just tell you this, there's going to be, in a sense, nothing new for us today. And and that would be true, I think, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. The things I talk about today, the revelations about God that he gives in this story, are going to be like, well, yeah, I've, I've heard that before. I'm familiar with that. But what I'd like us to do, if we can, is to kind of get ourselves, this is what I love about doing, going through the Bible like this, get ourselves into the flow of the story and get there when they first heard these things and try to imagine what it would be like to discover, really, God's like that, and hear these things afresh, which can be difficult when they're things we've heard a lot, but that's the sort of plan, okay? So does that sound okay? You ready to go? Should we get back in? Genesis, you know, Exodus to Deuteronomy, we've got to, got to move on, haven't we? Ah, fine, right, okay. Um, let's recap the story so far, probably not at too much uh, length. Uh, in the story so far, what we've seen in Genesis would be that humans... Uh, the pinnacle of God's creation, have uh, rebelled against God. They've decided they want to be in charge of things, not God. And uh, they, for, because of that, God has punished them. And that punishment's involved uh, death coming into the world. Humans weren't intended to die. Funerals were never meant to happen. But that's happened. And also their relationship with God has been severed to one degree or another. Now, having said this, God shows pretty early on in the story that he is, rather than just wiping this rebellious race to the side, he still has plans for the human race. He's willing to persevere with them and rescue them. And he does that. He shows those plans start unfolding as he chooses this guy, Abraham, who we know also as Abraham, changes his name later in the story. And he makes it clear to Abraham that he's going to use him to rescue all humanity in one way or another. So God speaks to Abraham and he gives him basically three promises. Okay, The promises go as such, He will be a great nation, his ancestors will be a great nation, that um, also that he will be, uh, his descendants will be given a land of their own, the promised land. And thirdly, blessing. He says that they will be blessed and God will make them a blessing to the whole world. The thing about Abraham uh, was he was a childless OAP at this point, uh, before the P, the pensions were probably invented, so maybe it's a misnomer. But he was uh, very advanced in age, had no kids, but it says he believed this God and God came through. At age 100, God gave him a son. And then we see in the story that this promise, these promises to Abraham are kept alive then through his son Isaac, and then through Isaac's son Jacob, and then through uh, Jacob's children, uh, particularly through Joseph, who then rescues the whole family from starvation and brings them one way or another, miraculously, to the land of Egypt. And when we see the end of 
uh, Genesis, where we just left it off last week. You've got about 70 descendants of Abraham. That's the family that are there. They've come to Egypt. The Pharaoh has been very well disposed and given them some nice land, uh, given them a place to stay. And Genesis finishes, and we pick up the story at the beginning of Exodus. Okay, that's where we kick things off today. Now, about 300 years pass before, between Joseph then and the events of uh, Exodus. And what we find straight away in Exodus is that the thing that we've seen most about God is stressed to us straight away. And that is, this God is serious about pulling off his promises. And we see straight away that he's doing that already. So in uh, Exodus 1 verse 7, it explains what's been going on for the last 300 years. It says this, But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay? And what's going on? Remember the first promise to Abraham. I'll make you a great nation. To be a great nation, there's a number of things that have got to happen. But one thing, I guess, is you've got to have a reasonable number of people. I think that's true. And over the 300 years before Exodus, that's what God's doing. Egypt is like the incubation center for the great nation of Israel. They just multiply and multiply there. So God's blessing is here. God's true to his promise. Again, however, at the same time as God blessing them, there is a significant kickback. Because there's a new pharaoh, in fact there's a whole load of new pharaohs, but the newest one and the ones before him have become a little bit wary of these Israelites. They're not so favorably disposed to them as the pharaoh before. And so basically they think, look, they're going to be a threat to Egyptian cultural identity. We've got to do something. Let's make them all slaves. Part one of the plan. Okay? Well, that doesn't work because they keep multiplying still and there's more and more of them. So they take more drastic measures and the Pharaoh says, right, this is what we do then. We need to get serious about this. The, the, uh, any male baby that's born to an Israelite, an Hebrew as they're called, we kill them, throw them in the Nile. Okay? It's drastic. But even in this, God's promise still works out and he still carries it through in an incredible way in that one of those babies is stuck in a basket in the Nile uh, to be hidden because his mum knows they're going to kill him and who should come up with the, uh, up with the uh, find the baby uh, but Pharaoh's own daughter okay, the princess uh, of Egypt and she finds the baby and kind of warms to the little baby I don't know how cute he was but he's probably a bit of a cute, cutie and she thinks right I'm going to take him I'm going to adopt this baby he can't live in a basket for all the time I'll take him and through one way or another God manoeuvres it so that one of these Hebrew babies that's meant to have been killed finds his way into the, the royal palace into Pharaoh's very own home and grows up in that context okay and you've got that character's got a name and his name is Moses now, Moses, just to flag up, is our hero of the story today. But as you've probably already found out uh, so far from Genesis, the heroes in God's big story are not always that heroic. We've seen that already, haven't we? Abraham, he's a great guy, kind of sleeps with his slave girl. You've got Jacob, who does unspeakable things. Same with Moses. And what Moses does, he falls for the old chestnut that we've already seen quite a bit already. He, he knows something about God's promises and God's plans. Uh, but what he thinks is, I, it's going to be up to me to carry these things forward. I'm going to do it myself in my way. So what he does, he, he knows that really the Israelites need to be free from slavery. And one day he sees an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. And I imagine him kind of looking both ways. think, nothing to lose here. I'm going to strike my blow for freedom. And so he kills the Egyptian. Murder in cold blood. 
But as anyone knows who's watched Columbo, uh, there is no such thing as the perfect crime. And uh, whereas Columbo is unlikely to have been there, someone was. They saw him, they rumbled him, and very quickly things spin out of control. Moses has to leave, otherwise he's finished. So Moses legs it, basically. And uh, he goes to a place called Midian, where he serves as a shepherd for the next 40 years. Uh, Consider this for a second. Before he's in King's Palace, in the heart of God's people, now he's moved away from privileges of of, uh, the palace, away from God's very own people, and actually, as far as Moses was concerned, completely sidelined from the whole story. He's out on a limb. He's out on the edge. I would have thought Moses thinks... It's finished for me. That story will probably rumble on, but it's going to have nothing to do with me. But then we have a pivotal moment in the story. Moses is out. He's out on the field. He's uh, looking after his sheep, as shepherds tend to do. And he sees a tree that's on fire, but is not burning up. Strange thing. So he goes over to investigate. And God speaks to him from what's known as the burning bush. And God makes something very clear as he talks to Moses. He says this uh, to him in one way or another, that far from being sidelined from God's story and God's promises and God's plan, actually Moses will be the chosen one to bring the plan forward, to free the people from slavery and to bring them into their own land. That's pretty monumental conversation, as you can imagine. But in the conversation, Moses asks an incredibly puzzling question. It might not be the question you'd expect this guy, who's going to be like mighty man of God, to ask. It's found in Exodus 3.13. He asks this. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Odd question. Is he trying to be polite? Is it like someone goes to me, should I call you Jonathan or Johnny? Is that okay? He's trying to get the formalities. Let's just get the address sorted. Well, actually, when you consider names in those, those days, we see it's not just a formality. This is incredibly significant. When he's asking, what's your name? What he's saying really is, God, who on earth are you? They didn't name kids in those days by seeing what the, the uh, latest royal baby was called or looking at the names of celebrities or footballers. They didn't do things like that. No, a name in that ancient culture, in many ancient cultures, would have been like a prophetic declaration about the character of that, uh, that child. I'm going to call you this. It will mean you will become this. Often we see uh, in the Bible people having their names changed. And again, it's not just a preference, it's to say something about who they are. When Moses says to God, who shall I tell them you are? Who who are you? He's saying, God, we've known things about you for years. We've had little flavors of this and that, but you're asking me to do a big thing. And we really don't have a clue who you are. We know you're kind of faithful to this promise, but really we want a bit more than that, Lord. Tell us something more about yourself. God answers like this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thanks for that, God. That's very helpful. Uh, This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You might think, well, that's not much of an answer, is it? Uh, Really, God, I wanted a bit more than that. But I think we can see what God's on about here. I am who I am, more literally can be translated as, I will be who I will be. I think what God's saying is this. Moses, you know what? You want to know who I am? Come with me and I'm going to show you. Watch what happens next, because I will be who I will be, and you're coming on a journey, and you're going to see it with your very own eyes, and we're going to see it as we look at the passages today. And so, moving on, 
a uh, bit of arguing, a bit of to and froing. Moses eventually agrees to toe the line. And uh, he takes his friend Aaron, who's his spokesman, quite good at kind of speaking and sounding authoritative. And they kind of waltz into Pharaoh's palace. Don't know how exactly this happens. But they get an audience with Pharaoh and they say, okay, Pharaoh, here's the deal. God, the Lord, he says, let your entire slave labor force go. This is his, their kind of uh, opening gambit. And uh, Pharaoh's response is simple and to the point and links very much with what has already been said. Exodus 5 verse 2. This is what he says. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Who is the Lord? I think in a sense you can imagine this response. These guys come in. This is one of the most powerful empires in the world. The Lord says, let them go. Who is the Lord? Can you see what the writer of the story is doing? He's setting up the entire story around this question. Who is the Lord? He's showing us that God's own people don't know who he is. The world has no idea who he is. And what's going to follow then is going to be primarily understood as God answering those questions. And he does it in spectacular style, as I'm sure some of you will know. Because Pharaoh... Uh, follows this up, not just with a question of who is he, but he says, no, I'm I'm not going to let him go. They're quite useful, actually, all those slaves. I'll keep him here. So what God does to convince him to twist his arm, he sends 10 plagues on Egypt. The Nile turns to blood. There are frogs, there are gnats, there are flies, there are locusts. Cows die en masse. Massive boulders fall down from the sky that are meant to be hailstones. Middle of the day, sun's turned off. Boils break out in the Egyptians, plague after plague after plague. You might think, okay then, what do those plagues reveal about this God? Who is the Lord? He's pretty powerful, I guess, would be the, the general gist. But there's a little bit more going on uh, than that as well. You see, for the Egyptians, they uh, believed in lots of gods. And their lots of gods would have been in charge of all the different things that happened around. So they'd think, well, the sun shines, there must be a god of the sun. The, uh, the, fe- the animals do well in the field and produce lots of uh, calves and stuff like that. Well, there must be an anim- a god of the animals. As God sends those uh, specific plagues, what he's doing is this. He's saying, you think Amon-Ra is in charge of the sun. You know what? He's not in charge of the sun. I'm in charge of the sun. You think Heket, the cow goddess, is in charge of the cows or in charge of the frogs, or this God's in charge of the Nile. I'll tell you what, turn the Nile to blood, I'll multiply frogs where I want, and I'll kill all your cows. I'm in charge of those things. What he's saying is that he is not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a family God who fits in with all the other gods around. He's saying, no, that's not me. You've got to, you misunderstood me if you put me like that. I'm the almighty God. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the God of gods, the Lord over all. And as the story goes on, he makes it clear that he's God over another potential challenger to his throne as well. And one we've seen already in the story, he's also God over humans, over us. Now it's shown in the tragic last plague where Pharaoh still refuses to let the people go. And so God kills the firstborn Egyptian in every household, firstborn male in every household. I think it's more significantly shown at the end of the story of the Exodus, where basically after that, Pharaoh says, well, I've got nowhere to turn now. I'll let you, okay, I'll let you go. I can see I've got nothing else to lose, really. And the Israelites leave, and they go. But then Pharaoh has another change of heart in the story and sees him wandering around, and there's a big Red Sea in the way. And he thinks, well, actually, they're not going anywhere. They're stuck. This lot are a bunch of idiots. They spent this whole time trying to get out, and they can't escape. 
let's go and get them. Let's get our slaves back. And there's Moses and the Israelites all by the, the sea. The Egyptians thundering down at them. What happens? Many of you know. Staff in his hand, puts it in the sea. <laughs> sea rises on both sides. And the Israelites go through. The Egyptians think, mm, bit weird. Sea rising up on both sides. But you know what? When in Rome. So they, or Israel as the case may be. <laughs> so they go through in the middle. And uh, what should happen? Water comes back on top of them. What happens at the end of that story is the army of the strongest nation on earth, along with their king, are left face down, corpses in the Red Sea. What's God saying? I'm the God of those, I'm bigger than those gods, and you know what? I'm the God over every man, woman, and child. I'm even God over the most powerful empire this world's got. Who shall I say sent me? Moses had asked. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh had inquired. The first thing we see in this story is, well, you want to know about the Lord? He's God Almighty. Nothing is impossible for him. I think we've got to step out of the story at at this point again and try to hear this very, very familiar truth fresh. Because I think some of you are probably thinking, well, yes, and he's very strong. He can do anything. We know this. This This is obvious stuff. Actually, it's not obvious stuff. If you had a chat with Jacob, if you went back in time and chat with Jacob and said, what are the limits of God's power? I wonder if you'd have some surprise answers from him. They didn't know. They would say, well, he can do this. He looks, he's pretty good at that. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Look, he, he significantly raises the game here. If you go to different parts of the world and talk to people of different faiths, there'd be many who would not have a view of a God that can do anything. Of course, he can do this, and that is strong, but he can't do anything. I think more significantly, for many of us, we might be able to say, yeah, yeah, of course, we believe God can do anything. But very practically, in how we live and what we're trusting God for, there'll be things in our lives, I'm sure for most of us, where if we're being real, we'd say, yeah, he can do anything, but he can't do that. It could be that there's an obstacle, you think, to God fulfilling his purposes for you in your life, or maybe purposes in our nation, in the church here, and your focus is so on that obstacle or that situation that looks absolutely unmovable that effectively what you're doing and how you're living and how you're making your decisions and even how you're praying is saying, yeah, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he can't do that. I want to ask you a question if that's the case. If there's a situation like that, get it in your head now. Think of it, okay, there's that. That's the hardest thing I can think for God to do that I think in a sense, I look at his word and he should be able to do. Let me ask you, is that situation any more impossible than Israel's was when Moses and Aaron walked into Pharaoh's courtroom and said, let my people go? Is it worse? Because God, as revealed in this story, is the one who can do the impossible. He's the one who can do anything. Christians do not worship a minor local deity, just one among the pantheon of gods. No, we worship the God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, for whom nothing is impossible. But there's more to be revealed in this story about this God. And in the rescue of Israel from slavery, I think we see two uh, other things about him that these guys hear kind of for the first time. And the second one is that God loves his people. That's the second thing we see in this story. God loves his people. Now, if we cast our mind back, 
to the story so far from what Jonathan said uh, in weeks gone by, we will have seen God's favor shown to his people very, very clearly. He showed favor to Abraham, gave him a kid, showed favor to Jacob, helped him out in lots of scrapes that he seemed to get himself into. But let's ask this. If someone shows you favor, does it necessarily mean that they love you? Let's think of an example. Let's think of an example of work. If I can imagine a situation where a boss might choose a, a budding young employee to kind, of, uh, to kind of groom him for a specific role in the company. He might look after him, he might train him, he might nurture him or her, whoever the employee may be. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the boss loves that person. There's no affection or deep emotion necessarily in that relationship. It could just simply be in the name of cold efficiency, just to get the job done. God's chosen people by the end of Genesis could have been just pawns on God's chessboard. They could have been just cogs in some giant machine for God. However, for the first time in the Bible, in the Exodus story, we really begin to see that that's just not the case at all. God's choice of his people is based upon deep love for his people. This is how God explains what's happened after they've left Egypt in Exodus 19, 4-6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Just hold on to that phrase. Why did God rescue Israel from Egypt? Because he wanted to bring them to himself. To himself. It's not just, I want you to get something done for me. No, he wants to have relationship with them. He wants them with him. Just going on here. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession, my treasure. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Listen, looking over that, that's not the language of mechanical purpose and efficiency. It's the language of love. That's not the language of the boss. That's the language of the lover. God's people are his treasure. He values them and he even wants to bring them to himself. And we see that as the story continues and goes on. Because again, you've got the Israelites kind of grumbling a little bit in the desert, but moving forward at the same time, mainly concerned about the lack of gourmet food the desert seems to offer. Uh, But they get over that a little and they move forward and eventually they get themselves to this giant mountain uh, Mount Sinai, uh, which they appear to. Now, if you remember the first, let's just, just test memory, uh, with uh, Abraham's promises. What was that first promise he got? That they were going to be a what? A, a nation, a great nation, yeah. Now, they've got enough people to be a great nation, but they're not quite there yet. Because, I don't know about you, but a great nation needs to have its own identity. It needs to have its own framework and guidance, and it needs to have its own law. And so what God says is, here we are, Mount Sinai is here. Let's seal this whole great nation bit of the promise. Moses, go up the mountain. I'll meet you there. I'm going to give you my law. And so Moses is like, okay, there's fire and thunder, and it's pretty scary. But what happens on top of that mountain is God gives Moses the law the legal framework for the people of God to make them a great nation, okay? And uh, he writes with his own hand, God, on these big uh, stones, uh, the Ten Commandments. And over the next period of time, he kind of elaborates somewhat and adds uh, another uh, 603. There are 613 commandments as a whole in what's known as the Mosaic Law. And there you have it, the law for the people of God, the, uh, making them this great nation, the framework 
to kind of give them that identity and guidance. And those laws are recorded in the last bit of Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy, where we're going to finish our story today. Now, let's get this out there, because I know this is the case for many of you, and I want to be honest with you where I'm at as well. These bits of the Bible are usually not our favorites, are they? <laughs> I go hear the, the smoke. I, I'm going to say I'm with you on that one. Um, it's basically, from this point, what it said on the tin. It's law after law after law after law after law. It's not exactly, ooh, we're shrinking. It's not exactly page-turning stuff uh, in many ways. And actually, I'll go even further than that. In this boring bit of the Bible, we have an especially boring bit. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you've ever spotted that before. Um, and the especially boring bit, just maybe you can highlight it if you want. Johnny said this. Please don't do that. Um, it's from Exodus 25 through to the end of Leviticus. Okay, that bit is a struggle. That's how you get up early to pray and read your Bible in the morning. You think, I'm doing the right thing. I'm on Leviticus 4. <laughs> the coffee's got to be strong this morning. Okay, now why is it, why does this bit come across as so dull? Well, I'll tell you why, in essence. It's because essentially, this section of the Bible is given over to explain how to build a tent. That's it. That's the whole bit. If you went to the Catalyst Festival and uh, lost a member of your party, uh, to, didn't go to meetings, weren't playing football in the afternoon, where are they? Go back to the tent and find them just glued to the instructions. Going, ah, oh, this is great. These are really interesting. I've even written off to the manufacturer. I don't want half a page. I want 40 chapters on this stuff. This is great. Well, that's essentially what we get uh, in these uh, chapters here. You've got explanations of how to make it, what to make it from, how big it's going to be, what you do in the tent, who should go in the tent, what you wear in the tent, the tent's decorations and furniture. I mean, it's it's not exactly Kirsty Olsoff on some of it either. It's just like the hide of sea cows is quite a uh, prominent feature. Now, Let's compare this to the narrative highs of Exodus 1 to 20. Some of you will be aware, uh, the director Ridley Scott, he's got Christian Bale, he's got Sigourney Weaver, he's put a film together of that, it's coming out soon. Now even if that's a box office hit, you know, they're not going to go, and the sequel is how they made the tent. That's not (laughs) happening, okay? Because the next bit is really dull. You know it's dull, I know it's dull. You know what? God knows it's dull. He knows it. And here's the big question then. Why then did he put this bit, which he must have known would be a significant lull in the pacing of his big story, why did he put it in his big story? Well, the obvious reason has got to be this, surely. This tent is pretty important. That's got to be it. What's the tent about? Why would he spend 40 chapters on a tent? Well, the tent, just to give it a name, or two names actually, uh, is called the tabernacle or actually also called the tent of meeting. Now, different scholars uh, would disagree on this. Some would say the tent of meeting and the tabernacle are the same. Some would say they're different. But it doesn't really matter because they both perform the same function and the tent of meeting seems to hit it on the head. It's the place you meet with God. It is the place, the tent, where God's presence comes to be with his people. It's what God says after they've done all the, the bits and pieces and he's explained how to put it together. Exodus 29, 44 to 46. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the Bible gives over 
15 chapters of Exodus, or 5 to 10 chapters of Exodus, and large portions of Leviticus, at least a quarter of the entire law, to, to details surrounding the tabernacle. Why? Because God wants us to know that he wants to live with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. And far from being boring, that is an absolutely incredible and unique truth about Christianity. You go in the world and ask people, what do you think God's like in different religions? There are very few people who are going to say to you, you know what? He wants to live with us. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to come alongside us. A boss does not live with his workers. A dictator does not live with his subjects. A lover lives with his bride. That's what this says. As you get stuck on your the cold winter mornings with Leviticus at the end of Exodus, you think with your coffee, I've got to get through, keep my eyes open. Stay back and say, okay then, what does this tell me? God wants to dwell with me. He wants his presence to come to me. That's his love for me. This tells us once and for all, it's implied in Genesis, it's made explicit here, God loves his people. I think, again, so what? Like We know this. If you're a Christian, you'll sing this every week. You'll pray this. Most days you'll say this. And you know what? You'll be able to say, God loves me, without even registering in your brain. It'll just come out, yeah, God loves me. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I've got to buy the groceries as well. This is on telly. God loves me. You see, it just spills out. If you're not a Christian, I'm sure you came along today expecting something about God's love today. It's not a secret of Christianity. But think again. Reflect how remarkable this is. If you got us, if you got Zeke and you squashed him into little bits and disintegrated him and put him in a pile and you got a goat and did the same, it'd be pretty much about as valuable as each other. I mean, it took AD, it'd be a different matter. But no, no, any of us, okay? We're, we're, we're not naturally intrinsically worth a whole lot. You know, take our, our rebellion against God as well, our track record. We've rebelled against this God. We've refused to, to play his game. We've refused, refused to trust him. Well, the news of this story is it's not just that God, he doesn't just not completely destroy us all. He doesn't even just use us to fulfill his purposes. We're not pawns to him. We're not playthings he'll pick up and discard. No, he loves his people. And of course, knowing the end of the stories we do, we know even this is a shadow. Because actually, as we go to the end, as we see what happens later, this is just picturing a time where God would give his very own and only son for us, to die for us. Why does it call Jesus the only son? Why is that always the way he's talked of? Well, there are lots of reasons, but surely there can be very, very few stronger pictures of value than your only son. God gave his most valuable for his people. For you, if you're a Christian here, the almighty God for whom nothing is impossible loves you. He wants to draw you to himself. He doesn't find you a pain to be around. He didn't get some deal where he had to get you in. Oh, it's a shame. I don't want to see them for the rest of the time, but I suppose they can serve dishes in heaven or something. No, he brought you to himself. He wants to be with you. He wants his presence to come to you now and in the future. You are his treasure. If that becomes complacent, that becomes just another thing. We've not got it. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. We'll never exhaust the depths of that love. But he loves you. He loves you. Soak it in. There's one other thing before we move on to the last uh, point here. Before this shrinks completely, it keeps just going down. Let's try this. That'll give me another five minutes before it goes down. Um, 
There's one thing other that we know that wasn't clear then as well, and that's this, that any of us here can enter into his love. I think it would have been, um, in those days, it might have looked quite an exclusive thing because the love, and I need to be clear on this, the love I'm talking about that God has for his people is for his people. Now, God does have a general love for every human being, more than his love for other creatures and other things on the earth. He has a general love for all humanity. It says that uh, Jesus said that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. It's a sign of his love. The sign that we're still alive is a sign of his care and concern for us. Okay? Yet, God is always pictured as having a special love for his people. It's a bit like a kind father would obviously like the neighbours and be nice to the neighbours and the people at work and all that, but he would have a special love for his children. Everyone would understand that. And God is presented very, very similarly. But the thing is, in Moses' time, God's people were defined ethnically. And so therefore, the special love that God had was for an ethnic people, a, a race, the people of Israel. But, it, but it's vital to see, and this is, as we go through the story, we get a flavour of this. God never planned to end there. This is the very, very beginning of what he was doing. The beginning, when he went to Abraham. The promise was, all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. That's where he's going. He's always interested in all the nations, all of us. Okay, But God is incredibly wise, and he's incredibly thorough, and he understands the depths and the problems we've got ourselves in. So he starts, and he does it properly. He starts with one guy, and he moves up to one family. And he moves up to one nation, Israel. That's where we're at today. But he never planned to stop there. It was always going to be so all the nations could be blessed. Actually now, through Jesus, membership of God's people is open to anybody. And actually that means that this unexpected, outrageous love of our creator is not like an in-house thing for the Christian gang. No, the door is open to you, whoever you are. But you do have to come into his people. You're not a Christian here today. I want you to know you can experience this love. You're, you won't experience it where you're standing at the moment. But you can come in. Jesus has made that door open. You don't have to uh, join a nation. You just have to come and accept Jesus. And if you were thinking, look, I'd like to know more about that today. Uh, we can't think of many things we'd prefer to talk to you about than that. So please come and speak to us about it. Because you can step into the love of God today. But there's one more thing that God reveals about himself that we're going to finish with as this, as this section of the story uh, kind of unfolds. And uh, after we've seen God's almighty, he does the impossible, can do the impossible. Secondly, he loves his people. The third thing, he's not a God to be messed with. He really isn't. Now, we've seen this in the story already. Adam and Eve sin, God punishes them. God looks at the world, every inclination of their heart is evil all the time, which isn't a particularly flattering view of humanity, but it's what God saw, and so he flooded the whole earth, except Noah. Rains fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah, dispatches the whole Egyptian army and the Pharaoh. I mean, he's not a God to mess around with. And often, people see these things in the Old Testament, and they view them as God being cruel or at the very least, having a little bit of a hot temper that he should probably get under control. But that's not the case at all. What do we see when we see this sort of stuff? I'd argue what we see is we see God's goodness. That's what we see. We see God's goodness. I'll leave a pause there, because you're like, what? Killing all the Egyptians? Very far from heaven. How's that good? I think we can have, I apologize for those of you who heard this before. I've used this illustration a number of times. Uh, But we can have a very shallow view of goodness, I think. 
We only get half the picture. When we say that someone is good, we often think it means they do good things, and it does, obviously. So, for example, if you were to see someone by the side of the road who was infirm and frail with some heavy shopping, what is the good thing to do? Question to the floor. Just, just checking it. Oh, you guys, I, I knew it. I knew I was among the front. You guys are great. The back, they were struggling with that one. So just take that one away. Help them across the road. That's good. So you actively do what's good. How about half of goodness? And it's only half in the world we live in. Being good also means standing against what is evil. If I was to meet the same individual and they were surrounded by muggers who, were willing to, who wanted to take their stuff and physically harm them and I couldn't get to the police, what is the good thing to do? Question to the floor. I've got to get to the other side. I, well, I'll, t- I'll teach you something. What do you think? This is, no, this is pretty tricky for you because he's a policeman. Vigilante justice, get them. Don't bother getting to us. Zeke's a policeman. That's not what he'd say. Okay? However, in a sense, not going over and above like due process, um, you'd stand against the evil. Surely that would be the right thing to do. I'm not saying I'd do it because I'm a coward, but I'm saying the good thing to do would be to step in and use force, if necessary, to rescue that person. Good involves actively doing what's good. It also involves actively standing against what is evil. And the God of the Bible clearly does both. But what's new in this part of the story is that it's not just that he won't stand for sin out there. What becomes very clear in Exodus is he doesn't stand for sin in his own people either. Leviticus 10. Aaron, who's been pointed as the, the main priest, uh, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, they've read the stuff about the tent. They've read it. They've memorized the whole thing. They know how to do the sacrifices to do with the tent. But they decide as they go in one day, they think they'll have a bit of fun. They'll do it a different way. They basically wing it. So what happens? Well, this is what happens. Leviticus 10 verse 2. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And the next verse shows how God explained himself to Moses, but also to these guys' dad, who'd watched his sons die. He says this, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. If you read Genesis, it is possible to get the impression that the people of God are immune from God's discipline and his judgment. And you think, well, actually, grace for these guys means when they do things wrong, God just turns a blind eye. It's all about the promise. Oh, let's forget about that. Uh, Judah sleeps with a prostitute. Forget about that. Let's move it on. Let's move it on. Grace for my people. Everyone else, judgment. But for my people, no. However, the story of Moses makes it very, very clear that taking God's love and power for granted is an incredibly bad move. If we were to say, oh, yeah, he's on our team. We're on the people, you know. Uh, We can do whatever we want, forgiveness and grace. If we do that, this story teaches us one thing. It will not end well for us. It's very, very clear. Because actually, God has higher standards of his own people. By those who approach me, I will be proved holy. Among those with whom my presence dwells, I will be proved holy. And so at various points throughout this part of the story, God sends plagues on his own people. At one point, he sends poisonous snakes to them as a punishment. He says natural disasters. Other times, he instructs Moses to bring the full force of Israel's judicial system against people without mercy for breaking the law. I think the clearest picture of God's judgment in this passage comes uh, 
what should be what should be the wonderful climax of the whole section of this story. Because what happens is the Hebrews they, they get out of Egypt to be seen, they get the law, they make a few mistakes, it's a bit up and down, but they get there. They get to the edge of the promised land. Great nation. Promised land. Second part of promise. Let's get it in the bag. Okay? Imagine Moses. Whoa. He must have sighed a relief as they got there. They looked over the promised land. It's all been worthwhile. It's been a bit of a slog, but you know what? We're there now. It's one formality. Let's send in the spies. Let's work out how to do it. Let's go. Off you go, guys. So he sends in the spies. Twelve spies go to the land, and they come back to Moses uh, with what he knew already. Numbers 13, 27. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But then just try to picture at this point, imagine Moses' horror to hear the next sentence. This is what they say. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. Full stop. At this point, the people side with the spies and they decide there is absolutely no way we're going in there. No way. Whatever God says, we're not going in there. We're going to get a leader and we're going to go back where? Where are they going to go? Go back to Egypt, where the story began. You've got to the end. They're almost there. Let's go back to Egypt. It's like the fall happening all over again. In the face of God's grace, you can have any tree you want. Just not that one. Any tree, do what you want. Oh, God, I'll tell you what, God, we'll have that one. Ha, ha, in your face. That's what I did in the garden. And God's precious image bearers were punished. Death came into the world. These guys are offered. Look, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. Here it is, have it. No, no, we'll go back to Egypt, thank you, Lord. And what happens to them? Well, this is essentially what happens. God decides and he decrees, every single one of those people who didn't trust me are going to die in the desert. That's what's going to happen. And he gets Moses to lead them, poor old Moses. He gets them to lead them round and round in circles in the desert. Not the nicest place to be led round and round in circles in. Round and round until every single one of them is dead. Next generation has come, but not one of those unbelieving generation is still alive. It shows. It's an absolutely tragic tale, but it shows something important about God. He's a just God, and he doesn't go easy on sin, even in his own people. Let's step out of the story for the last time today, and let's think about this, because this is really important to recognize. There's a tendency, and it's a completely understandable tendency, but the tendency in, in the church, uh, particularly I think in recent times, to sweep these parts of the story under the Bible and just end up apologizing for them all the time. We, we highlight God's love, but we try to completely ignore and wash away his justice and his hatred of sin. Sin that has absolutely ruined everything about the creation that he loves. But in this story, we come face to face with the fact that while God is supremely loving, he is also not to be messed with. He comes to us in love. He demonstrates his love to us. He does it still today. And he asks us, he demands us to trust him on the basis of that. He could just say, trust me. He shows us all those things. But if we don't trust him, he can't just let that slide. If you're a Christian here, can I ask you, are you being blasé about your God? Have you excused unbelief and disobedience in your life, assuming, I mean, his people now, he can't be too bothered, it doesn't really matter. Let me make it clear. He is bothered. It matters. If you see complacency and rebellion in your life, 
and you find yourself kind of excusing it with vague platitudes about forgiveness and grace. Well, I'm not saying forgiveness and grace are vague platitudes. I'm saying then we say, oh, he'll forgive me. Oh, he's a God of grace. If we do that, we are putting ourselves in an incredibly dangerous situation. He's not a God to mess with. He still isn't today. Now, as we finish, and we are finishing now, it's worth noticing one last thing. And that's that as God was revealing things to Moses, he didn't reveal everything to Moses. And we end today's story still not knowing everything that's going on. We end up with three strands about God. Powerful, nothing's impossible for him. Loves his people, but he's not to be messed with. And there are questions that come, particularly from the second and third together. But they're not questions that God answers in this part of the story. And they're not questions, they're not questions I'm going to answer this morning. Because this story leaves us with this still mysterious God ahead of us. And we know more about him through Jesus. And I'd encourage you, if you don't, to keep coming back. Yet sometimes we need to go back and we need to remember the raw data here. He is, he can do anything. Whatever that thing is you stop praying about because you think it's impossible. He can do it, he can do it. He loves his people. You're not a pawn in his game. He loves you if you're a Christian. But he's not to be messed with. I want, and the Holy Spirit does this, I want the Holy Spirit to minister to you guys, for you particularly as you worship. There'll be different things he wants to hit different of you with to apply that specifically and individually for you.